Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, reuniting the cyber data diaspora inside the Defense Department. The Army might have a little piece of data, and the Air Force might have a little piece of data related to cyber. How can we bring that together? How can we analyze that data in a common way and really kind of leverage it for its power? A full year CR's impact on the front lines. It's devastating to the warfighters out there because on the equipment side, you can't replenish, you can't modernize, you can't get the new capability that you want to get out there, especially if it's a new start. And we're using the wrong name for one of government's best cyber tools. Zero Trust is the wrong name for that technology, just it's more like infinite trust. Tuesday, December 14th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Health and Human Services has a new chief information officer again. George Chambers will take the job on an acting basis from retiring acting CIO Janet Vogel. Chambers moves up from his job as executive director of the Office of Application and Platform Solutions at HHS. The Air Force's Platform One software operation will get a new chief operating officer. Major Camden Cady will replace Major Austin Bryan. The Air Force says the change is part of its standard rotations for airmen. The U.S. Digital Service and 18F at the General Services Administration should collaborate better to prevent duplication of efforts, according to the Government Accountability Office. GAO finds USDS and 18F don't coordinate on issuing IT guidance and don't have a plan in place to start. GAO also found agencies closed about three-quarters of the recommendations it's made about agency IT programs in the last 10 years. You can read more about all of these headlines and lots more stories at fedscoop.com. IT leaders from the Energy Department, the IRS, the State Department, and the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center at the Pentagon are coming to the Cloudera Government Forum 2022. It's Wednesday, January 19th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can read more about it, see the agenda, and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department scheduled to stand up its Zero Trust office this month. The CISO at the department, David McEwen, says the office will be inside the office of the Chief Information Officer. Vimesh Patel is Chief Technology Advisor at Worldwide Technology and former Senior Executive and Technical Leader at the National Security Agency. Vimesh, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What's the signal that you think the department should take from the fact that DOD standing up its own zero trust office just to do that? Welcome, Vimesh. Hey, thank you very much uh, for having me. I, I think that, uh, you know, this is a great acknowledgement that there's a lot more to do in cybersecurity across the department. Um, and, you know, in my experience, uh, you know, serving our customers across the DOD, um, there's a lot of cylinders of success, as I, as I would refer to it. And so how could the office uh, in the DOD create a more holistic sort of whole of department effort against cybersecurity. Uh, there's no doubt that our adversaries are wanting to penetrate, deny, disrupt, degrade uh, defense department networks every single day. And it's really going to take that sort of concerted effort uh, to, to, to go against that. And I think this is a, a great acknowledgement and a step forward to, to do that. Exactly. Is it also, do you think, uh, testimony to the impact of zero trust across the government as an enterprise that DOD would basically endorse the concept by saying, so important to us, we're going to have an office that that just does that? 
I, I, I think a little bit. Uh, at the same time, you know, I think zero trust has turned into a, a buzzword of, of sorts. Uh, everything is now zero trust, right? Every every company has turned their product into a zero trust uh, product. And, uh, and I feel like zero trust has been explained to me so many different ways. You know, one time I hear zero trust and it's all about securely enabling remote workers. Other time I hear zero trust, it's about eliminating firewalls from networks and, and moving to next generation capabilities. And so I think there's a lot of uh, confusion around zero trust. I don't think there's, you know, a singular definition um, for zero trust. Uh, but, you know, Vimesh's view, when I think of zero trust, I, I basically think of removing trust from the network. And that's a journey that's not a product, that's not a tool, that's not necessarily even a technology, right? There's process and there's people in there. And I really hope that, you know, that's kind of what the office looks at and says, well, how can I, how can I continue to eliminate trust uh, and make my network and make our capabilities more and more secure over time. How does one build an office around a journey then rather than a thing, the way that you just laid it out a moment ago? Yeah, I, I think the the office is is more of a uh, of an organization to help create and enforce policy and bring people together. And to me, you know, the first one is to assess um, make sure that we have a really good understanding of, of where we are. You know, what are the critical things that we need to protect against? What are the gaps that we have? And then use that to develop a plan. Uh, I certainly hope it's not, you know, let's put out uh, some solicitations to industry, buy a bunch of tools that are called zero trust and, and put them out there. And I think that assessment phase is going to be a really critical piece to, to actually implementing, you know, better security across the department. Uh, so I think of it as as, as things like that. Um, I also think that there's some component of uh, creating a whole of government or a whole of department effort. So are there things across the services in common uh, or that they commonly do uh, that we could uh, look to and say, well, we're gonna we're gonna try and do this once uh, and, and service the whole department. That's there's a lot of challenges around that, you know, in, in terms of sort of policy and 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 things like that uh but when it comes to security i think you know if we could start to extract some of those efficiencies we can create a lot more security what would you look for as far as deliverables from this office to determine if they're on the course that you just suggested is the right way to go if, if i look at the end deliverable uh you know it is a more secure department of defense uh if i were to back that up once it's uh, an executable strategy and plan so it's not a vision document, but it's like, here's how we're going to go from where we are today to where we want to be tomorrow. And that's a lot of detailed thought around the problems we're trying to solve, the result we're going to try and create, and, and how to get there. I think too often there's like a little study and some recommendations, and, and it's like, okay, now services, you know, go forth and, and do the best you can. Uh, but to me, you know, our adversaries are out there. Uh, they have unlimited willpower and unlimited resources. It's not uh, let's do the best we can. It's you know it's almost an imperative that the office really helps the services you know drive that change. I'd like to see some commonalities extracted around security, whether it's whether it's identity, whether it's boundary defenses. Like let's and it doesn't even have to be technology, right? It could be it could be process, it could be um, uh, people. Let's start to extract some capabilities and do those for the good of the department in in one way consistently. Is there an appetite, do you think, among the services and in the fourth estate to uh, to not go forth and do the best you can to take solutions that an office like a zero trust office 
can offer and just implement them instead of having to figure it out on their own, as we've seen historically. Historically, it strikes me, go forth and do the best you can means everybody go off and do a different thing. Is the appetite there? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I don't want to say no, because I think, <laughs> you know, we have a lot of great people who come into to work every day in, in the Department of Defense, and, and we all understand, you know, our adversaries are not the other services. They're the folks, you know, across the, uh, across the oceans and, and in other nations. And I, I think the answer is yes, but I also think that there is a lot of culture change, right, that, that needs to be driven uh, to do that, right, to create that consistency, to, to validate and value uh, services working together. Because I think typically they're used to receiving requirements, um, maybe, you know, requirements directed from DOD and implementing them as opposed to, you know, really working across the board together. I think a you know really good example I would give you is is data sharing for cyber. Uh, my background's uh, you know from the National Counterterrorism Center, where we receive data from all over the United States government uh, to uh, you know to execute the counterterrorism mission. Uh, after 9/11, we realized that there was a big issue connecting the dots uh, across the services. Right now, everyone's collecting massive amounts of cyber data, uh, but there's not a holistic effort to connect the dots and bring that data together. The Army might have a little piece of data and the Air Force might have a little piece of data related to cyber, how can we bring that together? How can we analyze that data in a common way and really kind of leverage it for its power? Um, that's an imperative in my mind, you know, going forward. And, uh, and I think we have to get through the culture change and the policy for information sharing. If the National Counterterrorism did it after, Center did it after 9-11, um, I think that, uh, you know, we could do this, uh, you know, for cyber across the DoD. Is that model potentially an effective model in your view? I'm a little bit biased because I did come from NCTC. Uh, I have a lot of my heart in the, the counterterrorism mission uh, throughout the government. And I think the answer is absolutely yes. And and here's another you know interesting thing. Uh, our adversaries, as I mentioned, right, are, are laser trained on, you know, disrupting, denying, degrading, uh, gathering intelligence from the Department of Defense and the United States government. And it's not like the best of the best commercial tools will uh, deter them. Uh, they have, uh, as, as we saw in SolarWinds, right, they will figure out a way. So an, un, you know, an undeniable way to kind of strengthen that is to look at all the data that the government has and analyze large amounts of data over long periods of time. Uh, because they have to get in and they have to get out, uh, right? They have to be able to communicate uh, and penetrate these networks. And if they're doing that, uh, a large analytic effort over a long period of time has, a best, has the best opportunity to, to get around it. Um, the best of zero trust is going to be implemented with commercial tools and capabilities. And I, I think there's a lot of great capabilities out there. But just as we don't fight wars with F-150 pickup trucks, right, the, the Department of Defense has to have additional capabilities on top of that. Uh, a whole effort around data supplementing the architectures that we build for cybersecurity. Um, Department of Defense also has access to this great thing called the intelligence community, right, where we spend lots and lots of time understanding the plans and intentions of our adversaries. That information also has to come in to how we plan and secure the Department of Defense and, and all of our networks and capabilities. Uh, it's sort of one of these great, you know, commercial industry doesn't have access to that. I mean, they do get insights from it uh, in terms of information sharing, um, but we spend a lot of time understanding what our adversaries are trying to do uh, and how they're going to do it. Uh, and we have to bring that into part of the planning process as well. Vimesh Patel, great conversation. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You can read more about the Pentagon Zero Trust Office in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
February 8th is the Delivering Better Outcomes Through Automation event FedScoop's putting on. It's at the Ritz-Carlton West End from 8.30 to 3. You'll learn how agencies are adopting automation to build capacity, efficiency, and accuracy to deliver better outcomes. You can read more about it and register through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin says a continuing resolution to fund the Defense Department for the rest of the fiscal year would, quote, offer comfort to our enemies. Austin says the problems a full-year CR would create include, quote, eroding the U.S. military advantage relative to China, impeding our ability to innovate and modernize, and hurting our people and their families. General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force retired, is president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association. Hawk, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What do you hear from your members and peers about the impact a full-year CR would have on them? Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here, Francis. Great to great to chat with you again. Well, well, our members, obviously, the biggest challenge is predictability, the ability to do lead time ahead, the ability to up ramp on quantities or new starts. I mean, all of those are just devastated by a continuing resolution. And, you know, I, I think the other thing that people fail to realize is it's the time component of a continuing resolution because people go, well, we'll get you the money later. You can get it at the end of the year or second half of the year, but that's six months, or in this case, it'll be, you know, basically five months if, if we get one, uh, an appropriation on February 18th. It'll be the, the case where that's five months of time that you weren't able to do the work you needed to do. So no matter what you do, you can't make up that five months. And oftentimes you can't get to that level that you need to get to by year end. So it just sets everybody behind. So uh, you know, the biggest, the predictability, the loss of time, and the setting everybody back. Those are the things we're hearing continuously from our membership. Is it worse to have month-long or two-month-long CRs, a series of them, or is it worse to have one longer one, or is it all bad enough that it's all the worst? Yeah, it's probably all bad enough that it's all the worst because, the, the you know, I, I guess – if they told you ahead of time that you're going to be in a year-long CR, the, the devastation to the de- Department of Defense and the, the warfighter and the equipment they're trying to do um, but uh, would still be tremendous. But uh, from an industry standpoint, if they know that they have 21 money for the rest of the F- fiscal 22, th- there's at least you know, less, uh, less uncertainty, but it's still bad. I mean, it, it's just horrible. The, every couple of months, just continuing them on piecemeal, uh, it is horrible. And it adds that, are we going to get the money or not? I mean, just think about the workforce is you got to keep a standing army on. If you, if you have reasonable confidence that you're going to ramp up, uh, in numbers or you're going to do a new start, but if you're in this unknown time frame, then what do you do with that workforce? All of those are challenges. Put the uniform back on for a second for me, General. What's this doing at a command level to somebody who's trying to uh, lead a group of airmen, guardians, the other forces as well? Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's devastating to the warfighters out there because on the equipment side, you can't replenish, you can't modernize, you can't get the new capability that you want to get out there, especially if it's a new start. If you need numbers, you can't get the numbers. 
And then, you know, you also have what it's going to do to the to the operations and maintenance budget. This is a readiness issue, too. Um, for example, you know, totally justified and earned by the, by our young women and men. But there's a pay raise that goes into effect January 1st. And so that money's got to come from somewhere because uh, that's regardless of the appropriation or NDAA, for that matter. It's going into effect. So the question becomes, how do you you know, how do you maintain readiness when you don't know what the rest of the year is going to look like and you're operating on a limited budget? So it's a readiness issue. It's a modernization issue. It's a replenishing stocks and capability for our warfighters. Um, it, you know, from a standpoint of the wearing the uniform and, and trying to execute the mission for the nation, it's just horribly devastating. We do seem to be getting closer to the finish line on the NDAA this year. What do you see there that you like and what do you see there that bothers you, Hawk? Well, I, you know, I think the NDAA, I, I, my hat's off to the SASC and HAS for the work to get it done. Obviously, it's incredibly important. You know, we're going through it right now. There, there really wasn't a compromised version. It was really the, the Senate worked with the House and kind of adopted the House version. Um, so, you know, a lot of things were, were taken out, uh, not and they were agreed on in both the House and the Senate. But uh, to make sure that it could get through, they they did take some stuff out. There's the the what's called just in case act for um, equivalent of a cares and legislation that allows uh, the government to help industry if another catastrophe happens like a pandemic uh, that got taken out which you know we'd like to see uh, stay in um, i think the appropriation is the good side of it the fact that uh, the both the house and senate plus up the defense budget so i'd say that's the good side and then there's a lot of uh, a lot of things in there that we're still working our way through of what's actually in the bill. But it's a pretty it's a pretty narrow NDAA in that they wanted to get, a, you know, get it through both the House and Senate. And the way to do that was to take some things out. As we start to get close to the end of the year, I am thinking already about 2022. And I wonder what is on the horizon in your view that maybe people aren't thinking about right now that we will think about in 2022, Hawk. Anything like that? Well, I, you know, I think the the modernization piece for our forces, I, you know, more and more, I think every, it, and hopefully the American people and the and our legislators are understanding the the peer competition that that we're in daily with China and Russia, um, and that the the China and Russia have both clearly stated what they want to do and and they want to replace the United States. So I think more and more as we get into twenty two, it's going to be. How do we modernize? How do we keep pace? How do we stay ahead of our adversaries? How do we make sure that our young women and men that are serving this nation have the equipment, the capability, the technology, and the training to do the mission they need to do? And, and that's going to be against a peer competitor. So that, to me, in the coming year is going to continue to grow in importance. What is bothersome to me, Hawk, is that you are not the only person to now refer to them as peers, where we used to talk about them as near peers. Yeah, no, they're they're they they studied us um, while we were doing what we needed to do in the Middle East, and they are building everything they can to counter American way of war and American strengths, and they're countering us in every way they can ec economically, and they're you know they're using all the elements of national power. They are a peer. Hawk Carlisle, it's great to talk to you, my friend. Have a great holiday season. Thanks, uh, Francis, and happy holidays to you. Thank you very much.
You can read more about the possibility of a full year CR in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. The Defense Business Board has a new chair, but you will recognize her name. Deborah Lee James, the former secretary of the Air Force. We'll talk about her agenda for the DBB. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. You heard earlier in the program about the Zero Trust Office the Defense Department is standing up. That office is just one effort of many the federal government's undertaking to fulfill the Biden administration's emphasis on zero trust. That topic was one of several the National Science Foundation's Chief Information Officer Dorothy Aronson discussed at the recent SNG Live event on cloud. She was on a panel with Juliana Vita of Splunk, the former deputy CIO of the Navy. My Scoop News Group colleague, Billy Mitchell moderated the panel. In this highlight, Aronson suggests we should find a different name to call Zero Trust. Zero Trust is the wrong name for that technology. Just It's, it's more like infinite trust. We, uh, rather than uh, putting a, a, a moat around the castle and protecting the, the, the center, what we're doing is we're giving people, um, we're, we're ensuring that we understand exactly who's who you are, so we're checking your identity, um, proving your identity, and then giving you access only to the things you can access. So the the perimeter, the moat is gone. In fact, it's distributed. That you know, and so uh, the cloud is uh, that's an ex- actually a very good model for the effect of COVID as well, right? We're not sitting in in a castle in the middle of a protected barrier. And so the, the security has, uh, is evolving in the same model as we as, as, we as workers are. So um, now, and why is that important? Well, uh, you know, again, the notion that, um, uh, I, again, this is not a commercial uh, mention, but when the federal government tells, makes a decision about how to go, uh, it's it, it's a benefit. It's a gift to me because then I don't have to strategize and design, and I don't have to ensure. So uh, the 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 migration towards zero trust networking, which is mandatory, is essentially easing my burden. Uh, and uh, so I'm. It allows us to sort of. It's called think of it as trust but verify. I trust you. Uh, I need to know who you are, and then I'll give you access to what you need. That's great, Juliana. I know this is a, a important topic for Splunk. So tell me more about the security of the cloud and how Splunk's thinking about it as it works with federal uh, partners. Right. Well, um, you know, I'm glad that Dorothy brought up zero trust, of course, and you, we can call it whatever term. But the point is that the uh, you know the castle and moat is a structure of the past. It really needs to be. And um, so Splunk, other vendors are, are developing solutions ab- around that um, framework. And no one vendor has the corner of the market on zero trust. There is no vendor that's going to sell you zero trust. And if they say they are, then you need to go the other way. But what has been great to see is that the industry, the vendor community, we already are partner with a lot of, um, you know, a lot of small vendors and larger vendors and integrators. We already do that anyway. But in terms of zero trust, there is a place for um, 
there's different pillars of the zero trust architecture and different companies have expertise in different parts of that. So we have to partner together if we want to deliver the right solutions to the government. Going back to, we're all people who live here and we all have our data and our uh, privacy at stake. So we are incented on a human level to deliver the best solutions that we can to the government. And I love, Dorothy, language is so important. And I love hearing you say that, you know, a requirement or a guideline that comes from the federal government on high is is a gift to you. Um, I, I can't emphasize enough that this bringing together of industry with government to actually partner together and, and to be better together is required. It is necessary for us to move forward into the future because, uh, you know, industry has the agility and the ability to move faster. Government has the ability to tap into their public servants who have the heart for public service and the domain expertise, and we can get there faster together. So as it relates to cloud security, the cloud is not gonna get less complex. We're in a multi-hybrid cloud environment that is only going to get more multi and more hybrid and more complex. And keeping security across those different cloud environments is important. But when we all come together and realize that that security happens at the data level, and, and not at the system level, which is up here, and it requires an all of government and industry approach, the, the more secure that we will all be. And I do see a lot of that happening and conversations and relationships being built across and within industries and all of that is good and pointing us in the right direction. I'd like to add one thing to that. I think that's uh, brilliant. And I think a lot of vendors also have the heart for service, including you, Juliana. So I think that, um, I, I think that we benefit from the diversity of thought that's going on. This is why the multi-vendor, multi-cloud, multi-everything is really a genius solution because it leverages, you know, before NSF would have its own security thinking going on. And it was guided by NIST or DHS or whatever, but then you pull in the whole vendor community and I get to benefit from not only NIST guidelines and NSF's implementation of those uh, elements like the trusted internet connection, et cetera. But also every time I reach out and involve another vendor, I get their, their thinking and I get the benefit of their additional security that they're laying, laying on top of whatever it is I'm doing. So um, again, it's just another um, blending of thought that makes it all stronger. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Thank you for sharing that, Dorothy. Um, so let's move forward. And, and, you know, another topic I want to touch on is the cloud is an enabler of innovation. There's a lot of cool things that federal agencies are doing on top of the cloud once they get that compute capacity and, and really that agility that you've both talked about. So I'd love to hear, you know, you know, in terms of innovation, what, what types of things are you seeing that the cloud's enabling and how is the innovation really kind of sparked uh, in this new cloud environment. Uh, Dorothy, maybe we'll go back to you. Well, thanks again. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I'm gonna focus on the data side. Uh, I think at the moment, just because it's the first thing that comes to mind, there's a million options here, but with respect to innovation, uh, uh, we're moving from a kind of artificial intelligence where a programmer builds a program that thinks like a person, that's gone. And what's happening now is um, uh, we have applications that take huge amounts of data, diverse data sets from all over and read through them very quickly to see what humans have decided in the past. 
and to then predict what humans might decide in the future. And so the whole sort of the basis of artificial intelligence in today's environment requires computing capability that was never possible in, in a central data center. It requires um, a speed uh, and an amount of information that was not locally, that's not housed locally. So that's one way that cloud makes is essential to the data-driven decision-making that is going on now. The other thing is that every time we buy a product, we, we, are, we might be thinking, again, it's diversity of thought, we might be thinking we need a database. So we go and find a database in the cloud, but along with that database come a whole bunch of cool tools that we never thought of. So again, it's just, and then we have access to new things so much more quickly. We don't have to go out and purchase them. Imagine that we need them and then purchase them because we've imagined that we need a part of it and the whole package comes along with. So it's, that's, uh, it's just incredibly liberating for us. The Chief Information Officer at the National Science Foundation, Dorothy Aronson, with Juliana Vita of Splunk on a panel at our SNG Live Cloud event. You can find a link to watch the entire panel and the rest of the event on demand in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put this show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Wednesday's show includes the new chair of the Defense Business Board, Deborah Lee James. That Daily Scoop Podcast debuts tomorrow afternoon and on Thursday's show, Congressman Jerry Connolly is here. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.